Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I am your host, Nick Toro Jr. Uh, just want to let everybody know that uh, I just returned from a trip to Paris, France, where I attended the 2023 version of Paris Photo. I also attended numerous uh, exhibits and uh, other shows throughout the city in my week in Paris. And I made a lot of great contacts and saw a lot of great work and all of that will make its way into future episodes, I guarantee you. However, because I was away, I got a little behind on my editing for upcoming episodes. So what I'd like to do for this episode is return to an interview that I did uh, for my first season with a photographer who passed away earlier this year. Her name is Joan Lifton. Uh, Joan was actually one of the first interviews that I I conducted for this podcast. So uh, it holds a special place in in my heart. And the fact that Joan passed away earlier this year, I just think that this is a good time to revisit this episode. So if you're a longtime listener, you may have already heard this. If you're a newer listener, this might be a a new episode to you. Uh, And I think it's relevant the fact that I'm just coming back from France because Joan really loved uh, photographing in France uh, and one of her books was actually centered on the southern French city of Marseille. So just a a heads up that this is an encore edition of the podcast and so uh, thank you for listening and I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a brand spanking new episode. So Without further ado, here's an encore presentation of my interview with Joan Lifton. Right eye dominant. 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 This is the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I am your host, Nick Toro Jr. And I am really excited to release this episode today because it's a really great interview with a really special person. Her name is Joan Lifton. And if that name isn't necessarily familiar to you, uh, once we get into this conversation, you'll realize that she's had quite a life in photography. So Joan Lifton made her career in photography mostly as a photo editor, a photo book editor, and a teacher. However, she's also uh, a photographer in her own right. Joan has published three books of her photography, Drive-Ins, Marseille, and the most recent is Water for Tears, and we talk about all three of those projects in our conversation. Also, what's interesting is that she was married for a very long time to the photographer Charles Harbert, and uh, I was always a fan of uh, Charles Harbert's work. 
and we talk a little bit about uh, their relationship, how they met, and also how they work together. Uh, but primarily, the conversation was focused on Joan, her life, her journey through photography, and then her the work that she produced. So I also want to point out that she worked with or crossed paths with so many of the great photographers of the 20th century. And that's specifically because of her experience at Magnum Photos, where she was a photo editor for a number of years. And she does talk about that. But what's really great is that she worked with everyone from Henri Cartier-Bresson, Elliot Erwitt, Bruce Davidson, Mary Ellen Mark, her husband Charles Harbutt, among many, many other uh, really noteworthy photographers. And I just found this conversation not only really enjoyable, because Joan was a really wonderful person to talk to, but really uh, a peek inside what the, the, the world of photography was like in the mid to late 20th century. And to hear some interesting inside stories about the highly regarded Magnum photos and their stable of photographers. It was just a thrill for me to just have a chance to, to talk to Joan and about her experience in her life. I will say that um, there was a little bit of audio uh, challenges on this one. Uh, I know there was a passing siren and, uh, you know, we did it remotely over Zoom, but I think uh, I cleaned it up enough to uh, make it nice and, and enjoyable listen for everybody. And I'm really excited to share this conversation with you all. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Joan Lifton. So welcome to the Right Eye Dominant Podcast, Joan Lifton. Thank you, Nick. Let's start by discussing just a little bit of your biography. So where were you born, raised, okay. and education? Uh, I was born in New Jersey. Uh, my parents had bought a candy store in Teaneck, New Jersey, just during the Depression. My father was a diamond setter, and he had his own bench and men working for him. But no one was buying diamonds during the Depression. So he was, uh, so I stayed there for two, two, two years, but that's all. And then we moved to Brooklyn, okay. where I really grew up. And I went to Ohio, uh, Tilden High School. Uh, and then I went, when I was 17, to Ohio State uh, University. Um, I graduated in 56, I think. Uh, and I started modern dance, which, uh, which was, even though I majored in journalism, I, uh, I had been attracted to dance very much so. I really fell in love with it. Uh, my mother had danced also. Uh, and for about 10 years, I taught dance. So you, you, rec all. you received your degree... Uh, it, 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 your your bachelor's was in journalism, but you immediately went into... I immediately went into dance, and yeah. I taught it. Uh, my first teaching was at... Uh, the only way to support yourself financially, because it didn't matter how much you were in a company, the companies never made any money, mm -hmm. was... Um, was teaching dance. And I my first job was at Pembroke uh, College. Mm. 
which was the girls' school of Brown University. Okay. And I taught the whole year. And some of the dancers were better than me, which began to make me really, I mean, they had trained since they were children, you know, and I had begun dancing at 19 or 18, something like that. <laughs> uh, I, I was a very good performer, but I was not a, a very good uh, Choreographer. I left everything in the studio. Yeah, I improvised and then I forgot what I did. <laughs> Maybe in some way that led to, as, uh, in, in a subconscious way, that you ended up working in photography. Photography, I think, requires a lot of improvisation. And uh, yes, yeah, it's all improv. Right. At least the part of it that I'm in is even the editing is all improv. Mm hmm. It's all improv, and that was more comfortable. That was completely comfortable to me. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the times I did stinky ideas, but then you could get rid of them and try something else. Exactly, you know? yeah. So you started working at the, the UN, the United Nations, and yes. how, what, doing what, and how did you land that job? Uh, I think they liked two things about me. One, I could type very well. And two, I could speak French because I had lived in France for two years. After I taught dance, I went to France and lived there in Paris. Okay. And uh, they had a lot of Americans who could speak Spanish because they were, they were from some Spanish-speaking country. But they had very few, at that time in the late 60s, uh, mid, mid to late 60s, who spoke French. Okay. So they hired me as a secretary. And, uh, and a writer. I was a writer. And the guy I worked for couldn't write at all. <laughs> you know, he was a beast of papa. He, he got to work at the UN because he was, uh, was well-born. Oh. Uh, he was a nice guy, but he really was an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, uh... <laughs> interesting, the woman next door to me had all the photographs. And on my downtime, I kept asking her, could I help to file them or to look at them or to caption them, you know, when I didn't have writing to do. Mm -hmm. And then she got sick and couldn't work anymore. And then you and stepped in. They put me in very temporarily. But once I was in, it was hard to get rid of me. Right. <laughs> and I stayed. <laughs> I mean, I was a pig in shift. I knew that I could edit right away. <laughs> the editing was simple. Uh, wait, you said a pig in shit. <laughs> okay. I was like a pig in shit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's what I heard. <laughs> yes, you heard it right. Okay. So, yes. uh, okay, so... You, you, the UN experience that led to you ending up at Magnum. Is that right? Well, I, after I saw that I could edit, that that was that was easy. Mm -hmm. I thought uh, I really like this. I really like photographs, and I sent myself on assignments. And the first ones were very unsuccessful. But I, I was the acting picture editor, and I hid them. I hid all my failures <laughs> and my failures were mostly that I didn't know you use a light, uh, light meter. Oh, okay. So my first time was in Haiti and everybody came back with white eyeballs <laughs> and black skin. 
the pictures were lively, mm. but they were, you know, they were incomprehensible. Sure. Yeah, you could, uh, but I, so I went and I started to study. I only studied with two people. I studied with uh, Arthur Friedman, mm-hmm. who was very good. He was teaching in New York. And then I went one summer to Colorado and uh, studied. I signed up for Deanne Arbus mm. and for Bruce Davidson. Wow. Deanne Arbus and Bruce Davidson. Wow. And Deanne killed herself. She suicided. Wow. Right, right at 70. Wow. Uh, all 71, I'm not so sure. And instead of uh, Bruce coming to teach, he had a better job. And he chose Charlie Harvard uh-huh. to uh, fill in for him, who I hated, of course, because I wanted <laughs> to study with Bruce. <laughs> I'm laughing because uh, I know how that this story ends. <laughs> You're okay with it. And so <laughs> I was okay with it. And then I got to really like him. Okay. Uh, and he's the one who brought me to the interview with Mag, with Magnum. And they, they, I mean, I had the proper credentials, sort of. I was there for six years, from 75 to 81, when a group of us left Magnum altogether and started a new place. But uh, it was the best job I ever had because I had uh, about eight researchers this, the deputy uh, librarian, whose name was Tom Brazil, and he was very good, and two people who worked uh, handling all the details and clerical work. So there was a, at least there were 12. Mm. And the photographers were a small group then, so I could pick everyone I wanted. Uh, so, so the library was full of young people, people around late 20s, late 20s mostly, uh, who are in the arts and who are very, uh, uh, <laughs> a very strange, weird group of writers, uh, would be photographers, uh, so on. Then there was, the, and we had one big room and we worked only with tra- uh, trays of uh, pictures. Pictures, the, the files were full of uh, prints, 11 by 14, or 8 by 10. And they were divided. I'm telling you about the library first. Okay. Because uh, we, we were the main, we were the cash cow. Uh, we were the cash cow because that sold a lot. And uh, the photographers of the day were Renee, Burry. You'll know all the names, I think. There was Elliot Irwood, Renee Burry, uh, Bruce Davidson, uh uh, see the French office. Then it was the New York office and the French office. Mm-hmm. So the French office would visit frequently. So Henri Cartier-Bresson came, and Marco and gee, you just uh, named them. Bert Glenn uh, was New York, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. There was every anybody you mentioned. Bruno, very nice. I mean, some were very nice to work for. You're you're rattling it's, off those names, and to me, that's historic. Um, it was historic too, but I and I came in that way, realizing that oh my god, I can't negotiate prices for these people because all I've been negotiating for so far is myself, which is uh, it's low. It's it's low end of good places. 
Mm-hmm. I was negotiating to myself, but how do you negotiate for someone like Kache Brisson, an ad picture, or Elliot Erwin, or even Charlie? Right. You know, and three of them came to me at the beginning. Uh, it was Charlie and Elliot, and I think it was Bert, and told me, look, you're going to screw up. Don't worry about it. Just ask for a lot of money. <laughs> and if you uh, And if you ask for too much, They'll call you back and they'll offer something else. But don't worry about it, Joan. Just go with that you're representing good people. And we get money for mm-hmm. what we do. And I learned, I mean, once they gave me the carte blanche of that sort and said, do what you want. <laughs> go ahead. Speak for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the regular things, the textbooks, money, that was all straight. It was all established and read. But Magnum set the field, the prices that Magnum sent, sold its stuff for, and that was a lot from the library, uh, came from what I thought was the going rate. And I had no idea what the going rate was. So I got the prices and I asked for them. And then I decided that uh, that when people would say, but we're nonprofit, I would say, yes, but we're not nonprofit. We're for profit. <laughs> And I was never mean, mm-hmm. which they told me, don't be mean, don't be snotty, mm-hmm. don't be snobby. Just say that we can't do it for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and say, it was really nice to deal with you, and I hope we'll deal with something else. And then they would call back either to accept the bid, let's say it was $5,000, which is a lot in 77, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, much more than it would be now for an ad. Uh, or even $10,000, or it was just a $200, $250 thing. Yeah, and I, uh, I it was really it was wonderful. It was the best job I ever had. Uh, you were, aside from working at, at photo editing at uh, Magnum, you were shooting at this time as well? I was, I, I had begun, for my level, to have quite a big success from the beginning, so Woodfin Camp uh, was the first place I went to do, to put my photographs during the time I was at Magnum from uh, 90, 1975 to 81. I had my stock photos with Woodfin Camp. He sold them. Okay. And I began to have exhibits and I was chosen in 76. I photographed at the UN also. I began to photograph a lot. Uh, I was chosen as one of eight women photographers, American women, some of whom I became friends with later uh, to represent what was happening in the States in photography by women. Miss Magazine had started, then I I got a, a portfolio in there and so on. So I began to be... It's sort of an amateur photographer, but not amateur and not mm. professional, neither. Okay. Somewhere in between. I was going to ask you, what, what's it like being in a marriage with two photographers? Charlie was always supportive. Yeah. He was never threatened by me. And uh, he was really supportive. Much more supportive than I was at the beginning for myself. I was a good editor, and he gave me his work to edit. I edited my first book at, uh, it was Mary Ellen Mark mm-hmm. at Magnum. I edited uh, Holtman Road. And that was the first time I got my big fat hands 
in somebody really good's work. Uh-huh. You know, that was wonderful. And the same thing was true with uh, Charlie edited me. I know that he edited for spontaneity more that than anything else. He saw me as a spontaneous photographer. Uh, and my work was not like Magnum's because, I mean, it was so good. You know, my work was more intimate uh, uh, or it was just the things that interested me. I, was no, I wasn't competing with Magnum because I felt I couldn't compete. And I had no, I had no interest in competing yeah. with them, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I did want to photograph. I really did. I really loved it. And I edited his work. It was just, I mean, a couple living together. We'll edit. We will, I edited his work. And in fact, he gave me two of his books to, to edit. What I did mostly was sequence. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't just editing the pictures. It was sequencing that I had a very, I had a strong narrative sense. Now, I'm not talking about literal narrative. I'm talking about just, just uh, that a book starts, it's like a journey, you know, and you have the beginning. And you're going through all these other things, whatever they are, and you're coming to an end. And it was like a relief to me to be able to edit because I wasn't editing myself. I was editing another person's point of view. And I could, my ego wasn't involved. I, I didn't want it to look like my photographs. That, that wasn't even a concern. Uh, I didn't know what my photographs even looked like. But I knew what they looked like, you know, whether it was Charlie or Mary Ellen or something. I, and I knew what they were after, what they wanted in their in their work. And that was just, uh, that, that was just a joy, really, Nick. Uh, it was just a, a joy to edit. And it still is. Mm. I, I still love it. Uh, as much as I, not as much as I love photographing pictures, but I didn't photograph pictures all the time. I didn't know if they if people assigned me they got crap. <laughs> Most of them, you know, if they gave me two weeks to do it, they got a good take. If they just let me alone, I could do it. Mm-hmm. But if I was supposed to do it that day with flash, forget it. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. just, you know, I just be up to there, you know. <laughs> so you couldn't depend on me, but you could depend on me to edit, and you could t- depend on me to photograph if you gave me time. So I was good on. Uh, you know, on grants or on things where people didn't have a deadline. Mm-hmm. I I know that you uh, you quoted uh, Jean Luc Godard's uh, "A story has a beginning, middle, and an end." Can you can yeah. we talk about that? Because that so, does seem to inform how you approach your 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 editing. Is that right? Well, I I also approach my teaching that way, which I've done a lot of teaching and workshops uh, on editing and on shooting. But that he said that, uh, well, no, he was told by an admirer, but that uh, he loves his films. He loves Godard's films, but there is no beginning, middle, and end. He says, oh, yes, I've got them, but not necessarily in that order. <laughs> and that was the same way for the, on the first book I worked on, which was Mary Ellen Mark's uh, Oakland Road. And I put the, uh, her strongest images, which were the, uh, the portraits of the women who were at this brothel. And I put them, they took them from the beginning and put them in the end. And that made the book really sing. Mm-hmm. So Godard's thing always stayed in my mind. The beginning does have to be the end show when you're editing a book. And all I do really when I edit is edit sections. 
section. These pictures, I put them all on the floor. This is how I teach my editing course. I don't know if you'll want to talk about that now. Yes, I do, for sure. So go, go right ahead. Uh, put all the pictures out on the floor. I mean, find some place. Uh, if you don't have any table that's big enough, and I, I learned that Yolanda Como, who's terrific designer, the best there is, does it exactly the same way. She puts all the, and they're five or seven, they're small. So you can put them all out. You can put out a hundred pictures and the floor is even better because then you can just stand and walk around and pick out pictures that go together and put them together. And okay, that's a section A, that's a section B. This is like a day or two, but you're not. And then if you get stuck, look at them upside down, oh. go behind them, look at them all upside down and see which ones formally are interesting. With, uh, try not to look at them hard. Try not to look at, try, get a little stoned, <laughs> you know, uh, 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 I mean, make it fun, make it, make it a, a thing, and I would just play with them. <laughs> it was like playing with cards, you know, but it, it much more interesting than cards. Absolutely. Um, I love the idea of looking at them upside down. It's something I wouldn't have even thought of. It was Henri once uh, said, uh, look at them upside down. And I never forgot that. I never forgot what the guys, it's mostly guys, mm -hmm. uh, saying to one another. You know, I mean, I, I was listening. I was listening all the time. But also it was, once they said it, it was fine. It went in my head, it stayed there. Uh -huh. You know, editing. Editing was easy. So that was Cartier-Bresson? Really that was Cartier-Bresson's idea yep. to look at them upside down? Yes, because he was really, he was, uh, and if you look at his pictures a different way, He's very much a formalist. Yeah. Very much. So were there other situations or other people that you, you learned from as you developed as a photo editor? Inga. Um, she Inga. was Inga Morath. Thank you. Inga, yeah. Inga was wonderful. She, after I did, uh, she asked that I be her assistant on the next, the following year, 79, uh, on Magnus Paris. And that was wonderful because Inga was the editor and I was just the assistant. But Inga, uh, Inga welcomed arguments, which I had with her. I mean, I felt differently about some of the photographers. I was very, very high at Sergio Loren and uh, Chim. Mm -hmm. uh, I like I I liked a lot of the photography she did too, but but we but we on the edges we were very different, mm -hmm. and Inga let let me have my way sometimes. Uh, you know, she was a good editor, um, but not as good as me. <laughs> <laughs> Inga was uh, the only one that all the photographers would listen to, the only one who could get them all to agree because they all were counting. Well, I only have six pictures in this book, but I really want. Eight or why? Why do I have less than this person? You know, why is Dennis Stock have five, five more than me, et cetera? Inga could explain that to the to their to their understanding. So let's pivot a little bit now. Um, you also spent time at the International Center of Photography in New York City. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the time you spent there? Well. For 12 years, I think 88, to 2001 or 2000, it's in there, it's 12 years, I was the chairperson of the documentary and journalism program, education program 
at uh, the International Center of Photography. Uh, and I taught the seminar class for the students who were wonderful because I could pick them. Mm. And at that time, ICP was very popular uh, so that we got 60, and it was cheap. It was cheap to go as three to $5,000 for the tuition, but you had to find a way to live in New York. <laughs> Uh, that was expensive. That was a yeah. Uh, so they don't. Yeah, uh, it was the early. Uh, you know, it was the nineties, really. So out of sixty, I could pick fifteen. That was a good call. It was one out of every four could make it. So, uh, so I could pick fifteen or sixteen people, and uh, you know, at least one is a is a Magna member now. Antoine mm. Degada. Yes, uh, it was my students. And, the, and there are others who have put up books, and there are wonderful photographers among them. Well, I'll mention now, I mean, uh, uh, well, Brigitte Grenier, Andrea Stein, uh, Stern, Andrea Stern, mm -hmm. Morton Anderson was one of my students who was Sweden, or Norway's uh, major photographer now. I mean, these were all my students, they were terrific. It sounds like you had a, quite an eye for talent then. Just rattling off the list of uh, the students that you—it was easy. It was, it was easy because if I felt something, somebody else would feel something. Mm -hmm. It wasn't hard. If I didn't feel it, I mean, I trusted. Uh, I was really interested in photographs. Wonderful. And <laughs> I didn't take anyone to the class ever who was under twenty years old. No, too young. You've got to get laid first. Yes, you've got to get. You've got to get that first. Please say that. I, say that again. I'm going to shut up. I want you to say that nice and clear, please. I, I never picked anybody who was under twenty, except once when there was someone who was very talented. It didn't matter. His imagination was good. I didn't take anyone under twenty because they had to be laid first. Or they had to be so crazy about not being late that that's all they photographed, you know. But I, I had to get someone who thought about photography, not about getting uh, getting sex more than more than normal, you know, <laughs> for the first time as an example. No, 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 no. They had other things they had to do first. Uh, 26 was a good age. <laughs> 25 was fine also. I like I like them a little older. They were desperate, <laughs> but not, but not a, they were desperate about photography, right? right. Not about sound. No, I, I got it. <laughs> but I love that. I, I could imagine that they probably wouldn't put that on the application form for ICP. Um, no, but I are you a virgin? <laughs> uh, yeah. No, no, no. You could. You. I'm sure that you could read it also between the lines. You know. When you're older, you can. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah not even when you're that, that much older, but when you're in your 30s, you certainly can. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I love it. So aside from uh, photo editing and then teaching, um, I know that you've put out three books of your own work. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your, your personal photography? Yeah, that's why I quit the ICP in 2001 to put it to do books and to do freelance completely. And I thought I was ready. I got a big grant in 2000 and it was $20,000, which is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
uh, and it made me think, now is the time to quit. So I quit in 2001 after 13 years. And I was stealing from the students. I was beginning to think of, oh, that's a good idea over there. You know, oh, that's a good idea over there. You, you, you steal. Photographers always steal. Artists always steal. Uh, and I thought, this is bad for me. So I started to do, I had done drive-ins when I had some assignments. I was, I was different places. I'd gone to the drive-in just for fun. And then the Times Magazine did a portfolio of them in 2002 or three. And I thought, oh, you know what? I have a book. I have a book and I laid them all out and I had just enough. I didn't have enough. No, I didn't have enough. And I thought, okay, I'll go back. In 2003, I went back and Charlie came with me. He just, he just he shot what he was shooting and I would go to the drive-in at night Wherever we were in Idaho, uh, you know, places I hadn't gone yet. I hadn't gone in the far west much. I'd gone also the south and the north and the Midwest. Midwest didn't have many. Uh, and I just, I shot a storm. Uh, I shot at least a third of the book in, in the last year. And then I started shooting Marseille because I, I liked France. France was always a second home to me. And everyone had done Paris. And I thought, I'll do Marseille. And it took me, I went there three weeks each year at a different time. But finally not in the winter because you got no pictures. It took six years, eight to to 14 to to shoot that three weeks a week. But that's all I did. For those three weeks, from beginning, I'd wake up uh, in this hostel and go out and think, what did I photograph today? You know, who's playing Jin Rami as well as some French game? Mm-hmm. You know, and I found the Jewish the Jewish place, and I and everyone was playing Jin Rami, <laughs> just like I thought they would be, because mm-hmm. I'm Jewish too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but Charlie was very uh, like he he would keep looking at the contact sheets and say, "Well, what's it about?" Uh, and and uh, it, it it was about my Marseille. And finally, I got, had enough pictures to publish it in 14, in 15. And then Water for Tears was after Charlie died. So I used pictures from, from that I'd never published before, but still were like what I was about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's more of a book of my photography than any of the other two, the two others. So I'm, I'm I'm glad that you you touched on your working relationship with Charlie. Besides that, he was your husband. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share as we're kind of heading towards the the end of this conversation? I do want to mention that Charlie had a great editorial mind. When he could go into a situation, uh, he was really. Terrific as a uh, as an assignment photographer for life, for look, for everyone, which you would think of assignments that he wanted, and he would always he had a book that he, he had a like you keep you cooking your recipes in a, in a in a in a small thing. He had a recipe for assignments that he had played out with different people, different editors around the, around the New York scene. And he would go to each of them with his ideas, whatever they were, and he would try them out on them. 
he was very organized in that way. When he would go into a, a situation, he could really, there wasn't much garbage in what he shot during an assignment. There was the usual garbage, but, there, but it was very pointed, the pictures. And the, by pointed, I don't mean that he got the two people in the frame and so on that you needed. Uh, he got what, the, what it was about, what it was really about. Uh, and he was terrific that way. He finally gave it all up in 77 started putting together much more personal photographs of his. He felt that nothing was as important for the photographer as uh, exploring what the little man and woman feel, not the kings and queens. And he writes about that. He was tired of writing about what the kings and queens did for their morning breakfast or whatever. He wanted to talk about what he saw in America. Uh, and in other places as well. He, he was a, he, he was a, a wonderful companion. I was uh, lucky. You were lucky. I was lucky that Bruce who was already married very happily. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's. Uh, I'm gonna let's 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 end it on that note then. I th- I think that's okay. a, that's a nice way to to wrap up. So Joan Lifton, thank you so much for for agreeing to talk with me. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. It's been very nice for me too. So there you go, folks. My May twenty twenty two interview with the late Joan Lifton. Uh, it was actually a, a really nice uh, experience going back and listening to this interview again. Um, I remember how sincere Joan was when we were talking and uh, actually knew at the time that she was not feeling well and that she was, uh, she was ill. She still agreed to uh, talk with me, which I, I, I'm really grateful for, and that we have a nice record of of her life and her career in photography so that's it for this episode like i said at the onset i will be back with new content in a couple of weeks so in the meantime uh if you have any questions or comments you can go to the website right eye And you can also find all the episodes there. And if you could be so kind as to leave me a rating or a review, specifically on the Apple podcast platform, that would really help me get this show in front of even more people. So that's it for now. This has been the Right Eye Dominant Podcast. I've been your host, Nick Toro Jr. And until next time, stay well. This podcast has been a production of RightEyeDominant.art. The music for this episode has been brought to you by The Conant Project, Yazar, and The White Plains.